I remember this like it was yesterday. Me and Sam, we'd been packing all day in the flat top, two bulls that day, all the way up to the plateau, we ran that ridge out, caught a bull at the very head of the drainage that we typically hunted or a lot of our hunting was in, packed it out, and then we ran into another one of our hunters on the way home, and we went and packed a bull out for him also. Probably close to 20 miles on those horses in that pack string. And holy shit were my knees hurting me. It was nice to be back home. It was nice to be in the pack station. It was good to be unsaddling. But sure enough, right as we got off the horses, two do-it-yourself backpack hunters showed up and they needed some help. And I can see immediately that the younger of the two, he's basically almost in tears. Exhaustion slash frustration. It turned out that morning he had killed a bull, so they decided to pack two of the quarters out while they were already halfway back to the trailhead. After that pack out, just being you know half of what they actually had to cover, because now they had to go all the way back to camp, they could tell that they had dug themselves way deep. They were trying to figure out how they were gonna recover that bull without everything they left up there spoiling. You know, depending on how you hung up the quarters, how you quartered the bull, all of those different factors. You might have two or three days, particularly at those high elevations where it's freezing pretty good at night, but if you did things a little bit half-assed or didn't know any better, you might have less than 24 hours to get that meat out before it starts spoiling. So Sam slowly walks over from saddle and mule and he's standing there next to me and he just glances at this young guy and he goes, son, are you gonna eat those hooves? In his backpack, he had a hindquarter from this bull and he had about that much of a dirty, hairy hoof hanging out, right? That poor kid didn't know it, but he probably could have cut that hoof off and put a tenderloin in before that bull spoiled. I got in there early the next day. It turned out they actually hadn't hung up the quarters on the bull. So what they had done, they figured they could gut the bull and just open them up, and then they could take one of the hind quarters, one of the shoulders, pack those out, and then come back in the next day, get those other quarters, including the tenderloins in the back straps. Well, it turned out when I went in there, the two bottom quarters were completely bad. The tenderloins were smoked just because they were inside the cavity, even though the guts were out, there's so much heat in there. But we were able to recover both back straps. The cape was bad. So that is kind of a horror story. And these were good intention guys. Like they wanted to recover that animal. I'm gonna go through in this video a lot of the reasons why they ended up in that situation. But also on the more positive side of things, I'll go over some tips and tricks that are gonna allow you guys to keep meat in the field way longer than you would have ever imagined. There's been a bunch of situations where I had to keep elk quarters in a camp for three, four, five days longer than I was hoping to, and I had no problem. It's amazing if you do a few little things to dissipate the heat and then hang the meat in the right area and handle it the right way, how you can still come out of that mountains with a very good product. So let's jump right in and get to it. So the first general advice I have for you is get to the animal as soon as possible. I know a lot of people wanna leave bulls overnight particularly during archery season and particularly in situations where they don't feel like they hit the animal really well. But what I would suggest to you, if it's you know before September 15th, even at higher elevations, but for sure at lower elevations, push it a little bit. Generally what I've seen in the data set that I've seen is that a lot of bulls could have been found at night without bumping that bull, but people were being a little extra conservative. And then by the time they got in there the next morning, particularly if there's a bunch of logistics, right? We all think that we're gonna be back in there earlier than we actually end up 
being and a lot of times that's because you, know, you got to ride horses two hours back to camp or you got to drive back to the lodge and that takes an hour and a half and then you eat dinner and then in the morning you have to have breakfast and you got to get back out there we all think that's going to take a whole lot less time than it actually ends up taking so my general recommendation is of course use your judgment you don't want to bump a bull at night but man if you can find a bull at night and start working on it particularly in the first two weeks of september your chances of not having spoilage particularly on large big game animals like moose big bears and elk if you can find them it'll save you a whole lot of ink if you do have to wait to find the animal don't be a pansy about it all right don't get back to the lodge or hike back to your camp and then sleep in the next morning and then go get the bull, right? Or even get up at your normal hunting hour and go get the bull. Get up early. You know, get up four hours later. Get up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. Go look a little bit in the dark before it gets light. A lot of people go, well, I'm not going to find it until it's light. Well, this is the critical time because you have to get the core heat dissipated from the animal see that's what a lot of people don't understand this dynamic but quarters sitting in the trees and i'll go over later in the video exactly where to put quarters and exactly what you're looking for in terms of a place to hang quarters but once quarters are in a tree they're cold the core heat has dissipated away from them. they've got a crust on them even in the same environmental variables 10 hours at that stage can be not a big deal at all. But 10 hours in the intact bull, you know, laying on its side, crunched up in a hole with body heat stuck in there, 10 hours there, that could be equivalent to 50 hours or 70 hours of that meat hanging up, right? So this is a very critical time, so push it a little bit. And that may mean that, yeah, get up in the, go sleep for a couple hours, hope that that animal stiffens up and it's not going to get out of its bed if it's gut shot, whatever, use your judgment, but get back in there early and try to find that animal because the difference between finding it right at sunrise at 6.30 versus, you know, 10.30 or 11 o'clock or noon and now you're working on it in the heat of the day, so that prolongs it, that difference could be the difference between recovering 95% of the bull versus recovering 15% of the edible meat on the bull. So once you've recovered the animal, you've found the animal, there's a few things you can do to dissipate the heat fairly quickly. If you're using the gutless method, which is you know really the most common method nowadays, that method lends itself very well to heat dissipation because you're pulling the quarters off immediately, basically. You're getting the animal turned over, getting all the meat off, and that's gonna dissipate the heat from the core of the animal very quickly. So just by its nature, that's a great method. But one trick on that is just skin one entire side of the animal, get that skin peeled away instead of kind of working you know, one section of the skin off and removing a quarter, just remove the whole side. That's gonna immediately start dis dissipating heat because you've got the hide off, get those quarters off real quick, roll it over, do the same on the other side, skin the whole side off, lay it, lay it out, and then get those quarters off. And just an anecdote for you guys, like I have actually found bull elk the next day in late November, right? Like we're talking about temperatures at night that are negative 15, negative 20 degrees, and literally the animal looks frozen when I've recovered it, right? We didn't find it the night before, we found it the next day, the entire hide is frozen, even the limbs, the end of the limbs feel completely frozen. It's like it's rock solid. 
But immediately when you get into that animal, you start to gut the animal, you get your hand up there near the tenderloins, you realize that the animal a lot of times, even after a night of negative 15, negative 20, you reach your hand in there and it feels like the animal's still alive. There's so much body temperature in these animals. It's amazing. It's amazing how long it takes for that to dissipate. So you're fighting that during this period of time. You'll see the same thing, man. If you pop off elk quarters on a road accessible hunt or something like that, and you could have a bunch of ice and a Yeti, throw one of those big hindquarters in a Yeti that's completely full of ice, shut it, and then open it in 30 minutes, and you will be amazed how much of that ice has melted just from the heat, just from the core heat that's around that bone that's in that quarter, particularly around the ball joint. So on that topic, if you ever get into a situation where you think the quartering process is gonna be drawn out, and there can be a bunch of logistical reasons for this. I've run into this in particular in really nasty country with mountain goats. We're just maneuvering around the animal, makes it so, Make, makes it almost impossible to deal with the animal. So I figure like, hey, I gotta get the core temperature of the animal down. I'll gut it and get the guts out to get that heat out. And the other thing I will do is I'll take and I'll split, split the hips down to the ball joint. And to become very proficient at this, where you can do this really quickly, because I'll do it on bulls too. Like if it's just, you know, the 5th of September and it's crazy hot outside, we've got a dead bull at 11 o'clock in the morning. It's like, oh look, I'm gonna be working on this hot bull in 90 degree weather for three or four hours now, you know, with the sun glaring on me, I wanna get the heat off the bull. A lot of times what I can do, because I know the anatomy of the animal really well and I've practiced this a lot, is I can, with the hide on, I can spread the legs of the animal, go straight to the ball joint and crack the ball joints, right? And, and pop the ball joints out. Here's a video right now of me doing it on a moose and this shows you what I'm looking for. It's a lot cleaner if you do it when the animal's quarter's already skinned, but if you're in a real hurry, like kind of an act of desperation down some hell hole, you know, at night and you just need to get the bull prepped because, you know, maybe somebody's desperately looking for you. This kind of shit happens all the time on elk hunts up in the wilderness area. And you're in a hurry to get that animal, you know, just cooling down. You want to do this. But what you want to do is the best way to find those ball joints without creating a huge mess is actually to go from the butthole side into the ball joint. Don't go from the hip, from the point of the hip down. Go from the butthole side, you know, the ball, the ball side of the ball joint, the, the nut side, like the nuts, the animal's nuts, go from the animal's nuts into the ball joint. And that way you'll find the ball joint before you hit the femoral artery and it's just easier and cleaner and you'll make sure you get in there a whole lot easier. And once you hit that ball joint, get that cartilage and all those ligaments cut around that ball joint, you can just pop it open and you're just gonna, you're basically gonna see the heat start coming off the animal's core. So that's another tip to just dissipate the heat as quick as possible. And the thing is guys, in most scenarios, you don't have to be in a big hurry, but it just helps to use a couple of these tips to dissipate the heat because even if you are in a hurry, a lot of newer hunters, it takes them a long time to get through an elk. If it's just you or you and another person who this is your first bull elk, it might take you three, four hours. It may take you five hours if you're caping the bull or if it's in a real nasty spot and you can't move the bull around. So you wanna use some of these techniques to start getting that core temp of the animal down, the core temp of the meat down. So another couple big ones are be very conscientious what you do with the quarters as you take them off. Ideally, what you wanna do is you wanna hand them to somebody and the quarter comes off and it immediately gets a string put through it, gets thrown in a game bag, and it's hung up in a tree 
preferably in the shade. If you're up in the rocks, you're above timberline, there's no trees around, try to find some shade under a big rock, something like that, where you can lay the quarters down separate, not on top of each other. Again, you don't want them to retain the heat in a big pile of meat. You wanna separate them in game bags, preferably. Same thing with your back straps, keep them separate during this period of time. If you have extra game bags, put one in one. Don't put them in a big wad, just put them kind of separate and then lay them out on a shaded rock and they can start cooling quickly. If you've got snow around, I always do this in the late seasons. I'll shove them down in a snow bank, lay them on the snow, and the heat will come off that meat super quickly. Particularly if you're in the scenario that I mentioned at the beginning of this video where you're gonna pack some of the quarters out right now. Ideally, you don't wanna throw them right into a backpack. Ideally, you want them to hang for a little bit and get some of that heat off of them and then put them in your backpack, right? So if you do that during the process of quartering the animal, they'll be ready to rock. Some of that heat will have come off and you can start packing them right after you're done quartering up the animal and you're ready to rock. All right, so now let's jump to the part that most people, when they ask the question, you know, how long can I keep meat in the field? This is what they're really getting at, but I have to tie the two together, right? Because if you don't get the heat dissipated from the elk in the ways that I just mentioned, like you're really slow to deal with the animal, you take two quarters off, you go to camp and then come back four hours later. I mean, people do this kind of stuff and they think, oh, it'll be fine. People hang meat in camp for five, six days. It should be all good, right? Well, what people don't realize during that critical time, you have to remember that the meat when you kill the animal is damn near 100 degrees, right? So you have to get that heat off because while that heat's in there, that's gonna start bacterial growth, particularly if you've gut shot the animal, you've got a bunch of bloodshot material in there, you've got a bunch of different entry points for this bacteria to start growing. During that critical time, when the temperature's really high, that's gonna start, right? So if it gets started during that time, even if you're at 10,000 feet and it's October 15th, you figure, well, I can hang the meat for five days, it's freezing hard at night, you may still run into issues with your meat because the bacteria growth is already there because you took so long to dissipate that heat. So do that first, and then now let's talk about dealing with the meat in terms of this midterm, long-term storage up in the mountains. Now the dangerous condition is when you have no freeze at night or not, not near freezing at night, like your nighttime temperatures are only getting like 45, 50 degrees, and then your daytime temperatures are getting up to 80, 90 degrees. There are places, mostly lower elevation places, where this does happen during elk season. In those situations, you have to have a plan that's all about a very short time frame. Dissipate the heat and pack it out. You've gotta get it cooled somewhere if those are your scenarios. It doesn't really matter how good of a spot you pick to hang the meat because the problem with those conditions is it's an extension of the dissipation of the heat when you're actually processing the animal. You don't get the temperature of the meat down beyond where that bacteria quits growing, right? And so up in the mountains, high elevations, that's fairly easy to do, but in those temperatures, you really can't do it. So you're on a timeline from the get-go. Obviously, you know, hang it up and get it moving as quickly as possible and do these techniques I'm talking about in terms of hanging the meat here in a minute, but just realize that the, in those conditions, you've got to get the meat cooled down somewhere. 55 degrees, 60 degree days, freezing nighttime temperatures. It's great if it's a hard freeze, like 10, 15, 20 degrees, 
But if it's just getting down to freezing, 30, 35 degrees, you'll be all right with this too because you'll hang the meat up and it'll get a nice dry crust on it and then you've got a lot of longevity to deal with, right? As long as it doesn't get brutal hot during the day or you put the meat in the wrong spot during the day. So if that's your scenario, all we gotta do is pick the right spot to hang the meat and we're gonna have plenty of time to get it out. My first tip on this, if you kill a bull at night, right? So in the afternoon, into the night, you're working on the bull at night. Hang up the quarters wherever it's convenient because you really can't see your surroundings. You can't see where the sunlight's coming in. You can't see the best trees. You can't necessarily navigate the quarters down to a creek that's down below you. All of that can be very hard to do at night unless you have really idiosyncratic information on the area, like you've killed a bull there or whatever, and you kind of know the ideal spot to hang the quarters. You're not gonna have that information in the dark. So I suggest you just hang them up, get the job done, and come back in there first thing in the morning. If you've got these nice cool temperatures, that meat's gonna cool down really well, and you'll be good to go at least until the next morning before the sun comes up or right when the sun comes up. Get back there when the sun comes up and get to that meat, and now use your brain a little bit in terms of where you're gonna put that meat. This is the big one, right? And this is, in all my years of guiding and outfitting, this is where I saw most of the big mistakes, and that was the place where people hung the meat. You can dissipate the heat off of an animal and then hang it in an aspen that's only shaded half the day, but it's in bright sunlight in the middle of the day, and that meat will rot even if it's the ideal temperature, the ideal elevation. You'll still have problems. So this is an area where you have to be very cognizant of what you're doing. First, do not hang the meat up in aspens. Aspens generally mean sunlight and they don't have a canopy like conifers, so almost always they're a horrible spot to hang up meat. Hang the meat up in conifers. You might have to hike the meat 500 yards, but the meat will hang a whole lot better in conifers. That means pine trees, fir trees, spruce trees. Thicker canopy, generally colder environment. The next thing is, is look in the area for that those little snow patches, and this could be during September. A lot of times at high elevations, there'll be little snow patches in the timber, and they don't really go away. They're almost like little glaciated snow patches. You'll see this in a lot of spots in high elevation stuff, particularly in Colorado. If you see those patches, those are the ideal spot to hang up meat. Hang up meat above those patches because those snow patches are telling you that that's a colder area than all the surrounding area. That's why the snow hasn't melted. So use that as an indicator. And a lot of times these are not necessarily always down on creeks, but a lot of times they're closer to water. A lot of times they'll just be, you know, in some little swell, some little spot where the wind's always blowing a little bit, no sunlight ever gets in there. There could be a whole bunch of different variables and there's that little snow patch. Hang your meat right, that's a perfect indicator. The other one is down close to water. You're gonna feel, you know, it's cooler down there. Everybody's walked down in to a drainage, got down close to water, felt how much cooler it is. So use that to your advantage and hang the meat there. That's a great indicator. The last indicator I'll mention is if there's green grass on the ground below the tree where you wanna hang meat, try to find a better spot. That grass is growing there because at some point during the day, the sun hits there. The last thing you could do is you wanna generally keep water off the meat, particularly if it hasn't developed that crust that we're looking for yet. And the best way to do that is if you've got it hanging up and you know there's gonna be rain or if it's in trees that have 
you know, snow that's melting off, you know, it snowed and now you're getting a warm snap, that can be really tricky conditions. Try to put a tarp up above the quarters if you can. You don't want the tarp to be touching the quarters at all and you don't want the tarp to develop inner dew and then kind of humidify the quarters. You don't want that. But if it's raining a lot and there's an easy way to get some of that rain away from the quarters, do that, it'll help. The other thing is, and this goes back to the conifer thing, if you hang the quarters in conifers, it takes a whole lot of rain to actually get them wet. Conifers, fir trees, spruce trees, they do a good job of dissipating the moisture away, particularly at the lower branches. If you're not concerned about grizzlies or other thieves in the area that are gonna get your meat, hang your meat down in those low branches and you'll find that it'll stay very dry down there. Guys, I wanna take a quick minute and just tell you about my Patreon group. I've been doing it now for almost two months. We're having a blast in there. What it is is a hunting, planning, and strategy group. I actually just did a video the night before last that was on planning when and where to go spring bear hunting this next season. We talk a lot about snowmelt and how it relates to stream flows and where you're going to be hunting during the spring and trying to pick that ideal week on where you want to go depending on your area. I use Streamflows a whole lot because it's a readily available data source and there's tons of history, right? So I can use it, I can relate it to Onyx, I can see that historical imagery, see exactly what those shoots look like, what that green up looks like according to the Streamflow at that time. And then I can use those Streamflow numbers to give me a very good idea of when I should go in that area to target spring bears. So we're doing a whole bunch of that stuff. If you're interested, go check it out. There's a link on my website, join up. I'm not sure how long I'll do it, but at a minimum, I'm gonna do it through this application season into right up to the hunting seasons, just so everybody that's involved in the group can get as much as possible out of it. Go check it out. All right, so that basically covers the temperature aspect of things. If you use those tips there, you're gonna have your meat at the right temperature, and it's gonna last longer in the field. It's gonna come out in much better shape. But I wanna mention right here, basically the four or five biggest mistakes I've seen over the years for packing literally hundreds of elk out of the mountain. So the biggest one that I've seen that catches people outside of just being lackadaisical about dissipating the heat, already touched on that stuff. The biggest one I've seen is hanging meat up in a spot that's shaded only part of the day. A lot of people will do this because they wanna get the process over with a lot of times it's at night and they just hang up the meat and then they don't come back to check it. It looks at night like, oh, this is a good spot. Sun doesn't hit this. And maybe they even go back there during the day to check on it one time. They look at it, oh, look, it's in the shade, all good. And little do they know that area gets direct sunlight for four hours in the afternoon. That's probably the most avoidable mistake that I've seen out there is people are not conscientious about picking a spot that gets no sun all day long. That's a very big one and unfortunately it's resulted in a lot of spoiled elk meat. The second one I'll mention is related to both these topics, the dissipation of heat and hanging the meat and using that to keep the meat cold and it has to do with capes. If you're going to hang elk capes or mule deer capes, you have to get all the meat out of the neck. You need to learn how to pop the skull off at the top vertebrae. You can't leave big chunks of meat right here. I'll stick a video up here that shows you how I do that. I think I've got a short also that covers it, but you wanna get all that neck meat out of the If you don't do that, even if you hang up the cape in a good spot, even if it's very cold outside, a lot of times that cape will slip 
And by slip, I mean the hair will fall out where that meat is inside the cape. There's just too much heat around that spinal column in that big neck roast, and that creates bacteria growth there, and you're never gonna get that hair back, that cape shot. So that's another big mistake I've seen a lot of people do, and that's more on the dissipation of heat. The third one is people weaning out on working on animals at night. So a lot of times this happens with elk. They're up in the wilderness, they kill a bull, they finally get to it. It's been like a whirlwind trip of tracking this animal. You know, they've gotta get their shit together and just figure out how to get back to camp. And people get scared, it's late, it's in the dark, it's in the wilderness. And they'll just quickly half-ass gut the animal. Maybe they'll try to get to those ball joints, but they're just worried or they're worried that people back at camp are worried about them. So they squirm out of there quicker than they should and they don't get the animal prepared. You can't half-ass gut a bull and expect it to be good the next day. It won't be. Even in November when it's you know getting negative 10 degrees at night, your chances of there being rot along the ball joints in the cavity of the animal are high, particularly if the bull's laying flat on its side. If it's in September, you're almost guaranteed to have a completely ruined bull by the next day, by the time you get in there. So really try not to weenie out in this scenario. If you really feel like you need to get back to camp, there's a few things you gotta do. You gotta gut the bull, and that means gutting the bull all the way up the belly, ideally, through the rib cage, which takes a lot of strength with a knife or an ax or a saw. If you can't do that, go up through here and get the trachea out that way, but you gotta have the animal gutted from the top of the trachea all the way to the butthole. All that has to come out, the bladder has to come out, and then you need to go to that pelvic bone, find those ball joints from, from the tail end of the animal, from the poop shoot part of the animal, from the balls part of the animal, and then go into the ball joints hit the ball joints and crack the hips. That's the bare minimum you have to do before you go back to camp. One thing I'll mention here is a lot of times it's stimulated by people being worried that other people are worried about them. So first of all, usually those people are not worried about you. They, they know what happened. They know that you were successful or they hope you were successful and that's what you're doing. So keep that in mind. But if that freaks you out, which I understand, particularly if it's a family group or that sort of thing, have a way to communicate. Figure out how to use inreaches, inreach to inreach. It's a little tricky, actually. You have to use the inreach emails that don't work for anything else other than that. But figure that out and test that beforehand so you can communicate that that's what you're doing, and then you can focus on the task and get what needs to be done, done. That'll save you a whole lot of hassle, and it'll save you from potentially ruining a bunch of elk meat. So that's another big tip. The last one I'll mention again, I already touched on it a little bit, it goes back to the very first story that I mentioned, and that's that don't underestimate how long it's gonna take you or even you and your hunting partner to break down an animal, get the quarters up, where they're cooling off, and then pack out the animal. I, I talk to a lot of people, they tell me where they're going in areas that I know very well and that I've horseback hunted a whole lot, and they're telling me, I'm going to this peak, I'm gonna hunt this area, it's gonna be me and my buddy, we're in great shape. They don't realize that depending on when they're going, it might take two days for those two guys to get a bull out, but it could take four days. When you account for the fact that you gotta track the bull, particularly for you archery hunters, most of you are not gonna find the bull right off the bat, but you've got, it, that, you've got that whole period of time where there's heat on the meat, then you've gotta work up the animal, for a couple guys that can take a, a long time too, four or five hours maybe, maybe even more depending on if you're doing something with the hide or cape or skull or whatever, so you've gotta deal with all that. 
you've got your logistics coming out and then when you come out you want to go to town and you want to get McDonald's and you want to take a shower or whatever and then you go back in this can be stretched out to three days easy you have to factor that in in terms of where you're going and make sure you're not making that mistake the story I told in the beginning of this video, really that was their primary mistake. Sure, they kind of look like idiots as Sam pointed out with the dirty, you know, piss covered hoof that they packed out. But their real mistake came at the beginning before they even went on the hunt during that planning phase. They just underestimated how intense and how logistically difficult it would be to get that elk out in a reasonable time frame for the environmental conditions that they were up against. The next thing we're going to talk about is contamination because contamination, if you have multiple entry points of bacteria, the meat can spoil faster just because there's more bacteria and there's more points where the bacteria is growing, right? So the big ones when we're talking about wild game are your entry and exit wounds of the bullet or arrow. That's a point of contamination. All that bloodshot meat, all that jellied meat, all those bone fragments, all those bones that are broken, all of those points are areas where bacteria growth is going to grow quicker. The other spots for contamination are where you've gutted an animal, where you've quartered an animal, where you've cut into an animal, all of that, particularly situations where you have undigested food material, right? So gut shot animals or even non-gut shot animals, but you're cutting into their trachea, you're cutting into any of the digestive tract, the guts, all of those are points of contamination. Also, if you use the same knife to gut an animal as take off the quarters or to strip a backstrap off, those are all potential points of contamination. If you look at what the USDA looks at when they're inspecting meat processing facilities, the first things they're looking for in terms of contamination are any fecal material, any bile, any milk, right? Because those are where pathogens enter the meat you know, very rapidly and quickly and those are a threat to human health. The other one they look at is hair, right? So these are all relevant to game animals, maybe less so milk, but it could be the case if you're shooting cow elk, that is still something that could have contamination. The big ones for wild gaming are digestive fluids and then hair. People way underestimate how much contamination can come from hair, particularly on wild game animals. You have to remember like a bull elk, he pisses all over his feet during the rut. He'll stand in his own shit in a rainstorm for you know for 48 hours and has no problem with it he's never going to take a shower it's always going to be in there i mean if you take an elk hide that you've skinned and you just you know fling it in the air it's amazing how much dirt and grime comes off of them you can smell them it's not clean right so you want to be very careful in terms of keeping that stuff off of the meat that you're going to eat and some of my suggestions around this might be a little counterintuitive but the first one's not just keep the hair away you know those dirty hoofs that you're not going to eat just cut them off learn how to remove those at the joint and get them away from the animal once you have skinned meat you don't want there to be hair around but a counterintuitive suggestion on this is if the temperatures are very cool and you don't want the hide you don't want the cape of the animal i actually suggest that you quarter the animal with the hide on. So now you're like, okay, Cliff was just busting our balls about having you know, the foot in our backpack. Now he's gonna say it's okay to leave the whole quarter covered in hide. So yes, and the reason is, is that a lot of the meat that I packed out with hide on, we're talking about November stuff, very cold temperatures, the hide was not relevant in that regard. It keeps the meat that the hide is covering, it keeps it clean from hair. The minute you skin the quarter, it becomes a sticky area where hair will attach to it. So if you pack out a quarter where the quarter is covered with the hide, 
and then you get it back home or wherever and you've got it hung up and you can start skinning it then and then pull the hide down and off, you're getting all the hair away from that meat at one time. And then down at the base, you know, around the ball joint and where you remove the quarter from the animal, there's gonna be a lot of hair there because you've potentially, you know, taken that quarter, you've put it into a pannier, and I don't put hide on quarters into game bags. That doesn't make any sense. I just pack them how they are. But the exposed sections, you know, right at the knob where I removed the, the bottom of the leg and then around the ball joint, that's gonna be covered in hair. There's gonna be a lot of contamination there via hair. What I'll do there, after I've skinned the hide off that quarter, I'll just go through and fillet that off. I'll just trim all that off and get all that meat off. I'm not gonna pick the hair off. There's gonna be a bunch of them. I'm just gonna trim it off and I'm gonna be conservative with my trimming. And by conservative, I'm not saying conservative in the sense of saving meat. I'm saying conservative in the sense of getting the contamination away from the meat, right? I'm gonna cut a little more off than you might think I need to to get that hair away and you're gonna end up, end up with very clean quarters. So that's a little counterintuitive on the hair front, but that's actually an easier way to keep the hair away. The minute you skin any meat, it becomes sticky and tacky where hair will stick to it really easily and it's very hard to peel it off. It's very hard to find all that hair once it's stuck to the meat and one of the worst things you can do is end up having that hair in the grind. I actually think that it also affects the taste. If it doesn't cause you any issues on the spoilage front, having hair ground up in your venison does affect the taste. It's obviously gonna make it more, more gamey, you know, stanky or whatever. So try to not do that and keep it away. But now let's talk about trimming meat. My personal opinion is that if you haven't harvested a bunch of game animals, I think the first animal or the first couple animals that you harvest, you should process at home or at least watch your processor do the first trimming of the meat. Because what you're gonna see is that a lot of meat gets trimmed off and thrown away that you've packed out of the woods and you really didn't need to pack it out of the woods. You're much better off trimming that out in the woods. For one thing, it's gonna minimize the contamination at an earlier stage, right? If you've got a bunch of bloodshot meat, I like to trim that off before I even put it in the game bag. It's gonna get trimmed off anyways, and that's the point I'm trying to make. If you never process your own game meat, and you're always you know, trying to keep as much meat on there, you're, you're barely taking off bloodshot meat, you know, you're taking every little bit of rib meat, you're taking every little chunk of sinew, every little chunk of fat off a game animal, but you never see the trimming process at the processor, you're not even realizing that all that shit is getting thrown away anyways, so you're actually doing yourself a favor by being conservative and trimming more off in the field because it's gonna limit any potential contamination. Any bloodshot meat, any gelatin meat, if you're shooting like burgers where they just gel out a bunch of meat, you've gotta cut all of that off. A lot of times it means 90% of a quarter is gonna be trashed, but that's how it is. When it gets to a processor, it's gonna get trimmed off anyways and thrown away. If it's gonna get thrown away anyways, throw it away in the mountains where the coyotes can eat it, and it has less potential to contaminate the rest of the good meat along the way. One practical piece of advice I can give you here on contamination is have multiple knives. I don't always abide by this, but I try to. Any knife that goes through hair or ends up in the body cavity of the animal, in the digestive tract of the animal, I try to never use that on the meat that I'm gonna eat, right? So don't use the same knife 
for that that you're going to use for quartering the animal. If you do, try to clean it in the meantime. And even dilution helps. I do this a lot with snow. If I have to gut an animal and then quarter it, a lot of times I'll try to clean it with snow and get it cleaned up as much as possible. And from what I've read, that does help. You want to limit that. But ideally, you're using two different knives so you're not getting contamination there. In any meat processing facility, there's no way they're ever going to use a knife that would allow for contamination. So really as a hunter, you shouldn't either. One last tip that I'll mention that doesn't really fall into either one of these categories is how you bone out meat if you decide that it's important to do so. I generally don't do that unless it's in an extreme scenario. I like to pack meat with the bone in. If I'm backpacking, unless it's beyond that three, four mile hike, lots of elevation grade, I still like to pack it with the bone in. It just packs better. But if it's beyond that, I will bone out the meat. If I need to get the heat dissipated from the meat because that animal was sitting out all night, we're already stretching it, it's really warm temperatures, I will bone out the meat. When you bone out the meat, follow the seams of the muscle groups. If you do that, you'll end up with much more yield and you'll end up with a much cleaner product. And the reason is, is I see a lot of people bone out meat kind of haphazardly. They go through the muscle groups. Well, what happens is they take all that muscle off they hang it in a game bag. It actually crusts up, you know, outside of all those little muscle groups. If they spread them out so they can cool off, which is a, you know, a good thing to do if you're worried about getting that heat off real quickly, you've got all the different muscle groups spread out, maybe on the top of a game bag, you know, sitting on some snow or then shady rock or something. It's all cooling down. It's all getting that crust. The thing is, is now you have to trim off that crust. So you got to trim it off all of the muscle groups. Well, if you're processing those primal cuts of meat off the quarters, a lot of times you're going to have to take a lot of that off anyways, because that's where the silver skin, that's where the sinew is, that's where the tendons are, all the stuff that you don't generally process anyways and ends up as trim, they're on the edge of the muscle groups. So if you don't follow the seams when you bone out quarters, you're kind of doubling your trim, right? Because now along all the new seams that you've created, all the new cuts that you've created through the muscle groups, you're going to have a rind that you're going to have to trim off. You're going to have exposure that you have to trim off. Potentially hair is going to get on there. You're going to have to trim it off. And then you're also going to have to trim off all that silver skin, all those tendons, all that stuff that you would have had to anyways. So if you bone out along the muscle groups, you're going to end up with more meat and a better product. All right, I want to hit on moisture real quickly because I get a lot of questions on this. I constantly get people asking me, particularly on bear stuff. We've been talking about spring bears in my Patreon group a bunch and planning for spring bear hunts. Well, if I can't keep a hide cool enough in the spring, can I put it in a bag and stick it into a cold river, right? Because obviously they've been up in the mountains, they realize how cold those rivers are. The problem with hides, capes, and meat that we've already discussed is if you introduce humidity and moisture, bacteria growth is actually faster. So I'm not saying you can't do it, but this is what I suggest. If you get in a bind and you have to do that, use high-end expensive 55-gallon contractor bags, double bag the cape or the quarter, and then on your last bag, tie the knot and then put it in water, but keep the knot above water. And that's going to reduce the chances of you getting water into that meat, onto that hide, and it causing a bigger problem. And it will keep whatever's in that bag much cooler. So hypothetically, it does work, but only use it in scenarios you have to because it's very 
It's very difficult to keep the humidity off the meat, but if you do it, double bag, good contractor bags that aren't gonna pop a hole in them. Leave the tide knot above the water so water doesn't enter that way. Do two very good knots on both bags and you should be all right. The last thing that's kind of related is people talk about, well, how do I put it on ice? My view on this, particularly a meat that's crusted up, you can throw it directly on ice for the drive home. Just make sure you keep the coolers drained. I drain my coolers constantly. There's different ways you can keep the meat up off the ice where it doesn't get as wet. You really don't want it to get waterlogged, but in all honesty, I haven't seen a massive difference in the end product as long as it's not literally soaked. If you put the quarters in the ice, in Yetis, in the coolers, and you're always draining that ice, it's amazing how little soaking in you'll get. If you're really worried about it, and I do this with capes, because if I get a cape really, really wet, it's harder to salt it and dry it. It just takes a whole lot longer. A lot of times, if it's already cool, I'll put a garbage bag down on ice in the cooler and then put the cape and the head on top of that, and then it won't get wet because I'm draining the ice down below, and that works pretty well. But I will say on both these scenarios, the river scenario and this kind of tangentially related topic I'm talking about with the coolers, you don't want to put capes, hides, meat, into bags or even on top of plastic bags if they still have heat in them. You know, they're retaining heat from the live animal, right? You wanna get them completely cooled down before you do that. Surely don't put a hot quarter into two contractor bags, you know, seal them up really tight and then put them in a river. There's still a ton of heat in there. Same thing with capes, right? You don't wanna put a bundled up hot cape on the top of a garbage bag in a cooler and expect it not to slip. That's not gonna work. You want it to be completely cool and then use that garbage bag method in the cooler so you don't have to deal with a bunch of extra moisture. If you follow these tips and tricks, I promise you, you're gonna have very minimal problems. Over all my years, and we're talking about dealing with a ton of animals, I had very little elk spoilage, almost none in all my guided camps, all the guiding I did. I cannot remember any significant loss on an animal that we found within a reasonable time. So if you follow these tips, I know it works. Now, if you don't follow these tips, unfortunately, I've seen that in action also, and you'll run into problems. If you guys are looking for a great tactics video that covers a skill set that I think is very, very important to any Western big game hunter, check out this video here. It's my thermals video. It needs an update, but it's one of my all-time favorites out there, and it's one of my audience's favorites also because it works. If you enjoyed this video and got value out of it, do me a huge favor and like it and subscribe to the channel. I'll catch you guys later.